Are you a hardcore Disney fan? One with annual passes for you and your family to make a yearly voyage to a theme park of your choice? Picking your poison between Disney World or Disneyland? Is the happiest place on Earth your happiest place on Earth? What if your happiest place on Earth was hiding some dark secrets? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who, if you've listened to this podcast before, it probably won't surprise you to hear, is not a huge Disney fanatic. I've lived in Los Angeles for the better part of 15 years, and I've only been to Disneyland a few times, and each time, someone else was paying. I grew up going to the amusement park at Coney Island in Brooklyn in the 1980s. I like my amusement parks dirty, gritty, a little sketchy, filled with late 80s summer hip-hop chart toppers, and drugs definitely being dealt in back alleys. Disneyland, with its squeaky-clean, ultra-sanitized, giant-headed characters and barbershop quartets, is a truly bizarre concept to me. Any amusement park that doesn't have rigged coin toss games run by the Russian mafia just isn't for me. I like the idea that I may not survive my day at the amusement park. My idea of fun is the life-affirming feeling that I can face another day in the cold, hard world because I made it past the rickety rides run by toothless carnies, the shady bosses, and the seriously questionable deep-fried corn dogs. You know what I mean? So, you can imagine my surprise when I found out that there are people who haven't survived their trips to a Disney theme park. Underneath the shiny sparkle are some dirty truths the people at Disney would just as soon have you forget. Also, side note before we begin, if you have listened to this show before, you're probably braced for me to talk about Walt Disney's alleged rampant anti-Semitism and racism. But for once, I'm going to keep this one apolitical. We'll focus on the parks here, not the man behind them, because that could take forever. That's my plan, anyway. But as we're about to learn, even the best laid plans sometimes go haywire. Fingers crossed. Disneyland opened on July 17, 1954, on 160 acres in Anaheim, California, with 18 rides and attractions in five different areas. Adventureland, Frontierland, Fantasyland, Tomorrowland, and Main Street, USA. It's hard for me to picture this. With just 18 rides and attractions, there couldn't have been much more than three in each section. Like, what the hell was all that extra space for? Anyway... On opening day, Disneyland's co-founder, movie maker Walt Disney, gave this dedication address. To all who come to this happy place, welcome. Disneyland is your land. Here age relives fond memories of the past, and here youth may savor the challenge and promise of the future. Disneyland is dedicated to the ideals, the dreams, and the hard facts that have created America with the hope that it will be a source of joy and inspiration to all the world. What? Listen, bro, I'm here for the giant turkey leg and Mr. Toad's wild ride. Spare me the part about the challenges of the future and the hard facts that have created America. Opening day was intended to be a smallish affair of fewer than 14,000 guests, a closed event for family, friends, and some members of the press. 
But by the time thousands of people entered the park either with forged tickets and don't ask me how they knew in advance what a ticket to Disneyland would look like in order to forge one, or simply by hopping the fence, the head count was closer to 28,000. It was 101 degrees out, which even under the best circumstances would be not the most ideal weather to wander around in the relentless sun in the middle of the desert. But with the added hiccup of there being a plumber's strike, Disney apparently had to choose between offering his guests bathrooms that worked or water fountains. He chose toilets, which, you know, probably the right move. It may be okay to piss on the side of a ride in Coney Island, but it's just not done at Disneyland. But people, as people are wont to do, were suspicious. Guests decided that the lack of drinking fountains was actually a conspiracy to get them to buy the Pepsi products on sale throughout the park, which is not an entirely unreasonable suspicion when you consider that one of the main goals of the park is to get you to part with as much of your hard-earned cash as possible. I mean, obviously that's not the stated goal, not like savoring the challenges of the future, but it's definitely implied. Frank Sinatra and Debbie Reynolds, who were both scheduled to perform, were delayed because of awful traffic on the brand new freeway. And if it wasn't enough that the guests were forced to choke down Pepsi and wait for their beloved old blue eyes, three of the five lands were forced to shut down just hours after the gates opened because of a gas leak. Despite a disastrous opening day, though, Disneyland was a runaway success, with more than a million people visiting in its first year. A little over a year after it opened, Disney's first hotel opened in October 1955 and quickly expanded to meet growing demand. Such a juggernaut was Disneyland that 10 years later, Florida Governor Hayden Burns announced plans to open a Disney theme park on 27,000 acres in Orlando. Just six months after the Disney World announcement, Walt Disney died of lung cancer. Of course, we all know his body is frozen in a cryogenic chamber until the technology to bring him back to life is invented. Any day now. The Disney World Resort opened in 1971, and according to writer Garrett Martin for a 2021 piece in Paste magazine, it, quote, revolutionized the way families vacation, end quote. It was a world unto itself where one could completely forget the outside world. Martin writes... Have you ever been to a museum and seen a painting that's so beautiful, that's so evocative of an emotion or a time or even an idea that you can't quite put into words that you feel transported, maybe even transformed by looking at it? That is what it feels like to visit a theme park when it's well designed. And no theme parks are better designed than Disney's. Personally, I have no idea what in the world he's talking about, but hey, to each their own. And I'm apparently in the minority because people love Disney. Holy cow, do they love Disney. Last time I was there, I saw a couple with a baby who had to have come out of its mother mere seconds before. That's how much people love Disney. They will birth a whole human and take a postnatal holiday that makes certain its first experience is the It's a Small World ride. People love Disney so much that by 2019, the 12 theme parks around the world generated a whopping $36 billion in revenue. Considering that Disney bought the original acreage in Anaheim for the equivalent of a little more than $300 million, I'd say it was a sound investment, which Disney himself will be able to enjoy just as soon as he's thawed out. Any day now. 
But running the happiest place on Earth turns out not to be the easiest task on Earth. (laughs) See what I did there? As the cult of Disney grew, so too did the rumors about what darkness lay beneath its shiny, happy exterior. Now, realistically, with so many millions of people pouring into Disney parks each year, it would stand to reason that some of them might meet an untimely death on theme park grounds. There are, after all, only two constants in life, death and waiting in line for hours for the new Star Wars ride that lasts a whole five minutes. Death waits for no one. It cares not whether it's your first visit on your brand new annual pass or that you were planning on proposing to your girlfriend at the top of Space Mountain. But here's the thing. No one dies in a Disney theme park. Then again, to quote every dude ever, well, actually. According to the book Inside the Mouse, Work and Play at Disney, officially written by something called The Project on Disney, whose members seem to be a collection of East Coast academics, official Disney policy states that no one can be declared dead on Disney property. If the Reaper comes for you inside the gates, the paramedics are instructed to perform life-saving measures, no matter how futile, while swiftly escorting you off campus, whereupon they can stop their efforts and officially declare you dead. That way, you see, no one dies at Disney. In the book, the so-called Project on Disney claimed that when asked about deaths at the park, a group leader at one of Disney's pricey management seminars said, We had a guy last summer who went to Epcot, stood in front of the golf ball, took a gun, and blew his head off. But he didn't die. He stood right there in front of all those tourists and went, and brains blew everywhere. But he didn't die there. The medic told me that they are not allowed to let them die there. Keep them alive by artificial means until they're off Disney property. Like there's an imaginary line in the road and they go, he's alive, he's alive, he's dead. And if it strikes you as highly improbable that an official person from Disney at an official Disney event would say something like that, you're not alone. Call me paranoid, but this smells like a quote one might make up to sell books. No? I'm on to you, the project on Disney. Despite this alleged company policy that no one dies at Disney, of course people have died at Disney because... science. Though the official body count, which is somewhere around a couple dozen, is statistically incredibly low given the hordes that visit annually. But here, strangers, are some of them, because I know some of you are into this kind of thing. No kink-shaming, but also, like, if reveling in others' deaths is how you unwind, might I gently suggest therapy? Love you. In 1964, 15-year-old Mark Maples unbuckled his seatbelt near the peak of Matterhorn Mountain, stood up, and plummeted off the tracks. He died from his injuries three days later, so actually he didn't technically die at Disney. It's not tremendously surprising that a good portion of the deaths at Disney are of teenagers. Teenagers are, after all, wired to do stupid things because they have no sense of their own mortality, which is a helpful trait if you're trying to get them to move out of the house, but not so helpful when you think jumping off a high-speed ride is a good idea. At least three of these teenage deaths happened on grad night at Disneyland, which is an after-hours night for area high school seniors because, Lord knows, if there's anything more reckless than a teenager, it's hundreds of teenagers together high on adrenaline and hormones. In 1966, 19-year-old Thomas Guy Cleveland tried to sneak into Disneyland on grad night by scaling the monorail. 
As the monorail rapidly approached him, Cleveland tried clearing the tracks, but didn't make it in time. He was killed, and his body was dragged 30 or 40 feet down the track. Another teen on grad night in 1980 decided to jump from car to car on the people mover when he fell onto the tracks and was hit and killed by the people mover coming from the opposite direction and was dragged hundreds of feet. And then in 1983, an 18-year-old at Disney on grad night who had been drinking heavily, which begs the question, Disney isn't actually serving alcohol to high school seniors on grad night, right? Drowned in the river near Tom Sawyer Island after he and a friend stole an inflatable maintenance boat and took it for a joyride. But it's not just teenagers being all teenagery causing tragedy at Disney. In 1981, 28-year-old James O'Driscoll stabbed 18-year-old Mel Yorba in the heart for touching his girlfriend. You know I'm all for protecting women, but please give me a break. Apparently, Disney medics took a while to respond, but even so, Yorba wasn't officially dead until he got to a nearby hospital. In September of 1992, 37-year-old Alan Ferris went to Epcot to stalk his ex-girlfriend and was approached by a security guard after illegally entering the park. Ferris took a 12-gauge shotgun out of his bag and shot at the security guard three times and then took two more employees hostage in a nearby bathroom. As far as I can tell, no one called the police. Incidentally, Disney has gotten flack over the years for not allowing emergency vehicles on campus, which makes sense from a PR standpoint. No one wants to be on the teacups with their toddler when a flock of ambulances come screaming through the park. But, you know, when there's a dude with a 12-gauge and two hostages, it seems like pretty much textbook time to call for backup, no? Ferris tried to taunt the security guards into killing him before he abruptly shot himself in the head and, conveniently for Disney, did not die until he was in the ambulance a safe distance from the sacred ground of Disney, where no one dies. It's easy to be lulled into a false sense of security when the majority of people dying at Disney, unofficially of course, are dying because of plain old bad choices, doing something careless on a ride or being a dickhead with a gun or a knife. But people have, of course, also met their fate at Disney through no fault of their own because of good old-fashioned negligence. In 2003, an axle on Big Thunder Mountain broke, causing the cars to collide with each other, crushing 22-year-old Marcelo Torres to death. Big Thunder Mountain was my son's favorite ride when we took him to Disneyland for his fifth birthday, and he's lucky I didn't know about this back then because I never would have let him on it. Which I know is insane given how one fatal accident on a roller coaster is nothing compared to literally every other danger he faces every day just existing in the world. Oh God, I need a nap. The most gruesome death, and that's your trigger warning, folks, was in 1974 when 18-year-old Gail Stone, who was working as a host on the America Sings attraction in order to save up money before starting college that fall, got crushed between two walls as the stage rotated on a turntable. It seems no one actually witnessed the accident itself, which is the only okay thing about this story. The awful accident would have been bad enough without others having to live with the trauma of having seen it happen. Instead, we have to use our imagination, which any horror film director, with the exception of whoever made the Saw movies, will tell you is usually a lot worse than seeing something actually happen. 
Side note, the headline in the Los Angeles Times in the 1974 article about this accident was, Girl Employee Killed at Disneyland. What was that about? Girl Employee? Like they were worried people wouldn't read the article if they didn't know the victim was a girl? What is that? So, let's give our poor imaginations a little break from all this death and awfulness, shall we? Let's move on to something less gruesome, like human remains. According to a 2018 article in the Wall Street Journal, about once a month, people come to a Disney park to spread their loved one's ashes. The article claims, quote, Human ashes have been spread in flower beds, on bushes, and on Magic Kingdom lawns, outside the park gates and during fireworks displays, on Pirates of the Caribbean, and in the moat underneath the flying elephants of the Dumbo ride. Most frequently of all, according to custodians and park workers, they've been dispersed throughout the Haunted Mansion, the 49-year-old attraction featuring an eerie old estate full of imaginary ghosts. The Haunted Mansion probably has so much human ashes in it that it's not even funny, said one Disneyland custodian, end quote. As someone who has spread someone's ashes in a place they loved, let me tell you, the trick is to be as clandestine about it as you can. Not like Jody Jackson-Wells, who told the Wall Street Journal that in 2009 she brought her mother's ashes into Disney World, hopped over the barricades surrounding Cinderella's castle with two fistfuls of her mother's ashes, and flung them across the lawn as she, quote, leapt like I was a dancer, end quote. The folly of this approach, of course, is that once park officials realize you've spread hazardous waste, they're going to vacuum that shit up with special HEPA filters and your loved one will end up in a landfill. Better to go the Shawshank Redemption route and dump it out in small handfuls through a hole in your pants pocket. Let me tell you something, strangers. If I die and find out that some jabroni spread my ashes in the fucking Pirates of the Caribbean ride, I will come back to life and murder them and dump their ashes in a vat of Guy Fieri's donkey sauce. To each their own, I guess. But have you been on Pirates of the Caribbean lately? It's basically Country Bears Picnic with plastic dudes with beards and bandanas going, Yarg, matey! No, thank you. Perhaps the only thing worse than having to ride Pirates of the Caribbean would be getting stuck in Pirates of the Caribbean for the rest of eternity. But that is supposedly exactly what happened to a man named George who died while working on Pirates of the Caribbean prior to its opening at Disneyland in the early 70s. Depending on which version you believe, George was either crushed or fell to his death. Regardless of the manner of his death, though, legend has it, George haunts Pirates of the Caribbean to this day. According to a Disney-related Reddit thread, the obvious authority on the subject... During the first few months of the attraction's opening, it is said that an old woman would often enter the ride and ask for a boat to herself. On the in-ride security cameras, she could be seen weeping and talking to nobody. Eventually, it was discovered that she was having imaginary conversations with her deceased son, George. Employees have claimed to see George's ghost on the monitors or have heard phantom footsteps or received calls from the control room when no one was in it. According to the blog Inside the Magic, if employees don't bid George hello or goodbye, he causes trouble on the ride, causing it to malfunction or break down. And over on DrDisney.com, I learned that guests with a shitty attitude will often get the business end from George, who will cause the ride to break down while they're on it. But here's the thing. Rides at Disney tend to stop or break down a lot. 
For such an expensive park, I have to say it's remarkable how often a ride just stops and you have to sit there and wait for it to be fixed while being stuck listening to It's a Small World After All until your ears bleed, or you have to be evacuated and hoof it out of the haunted mansion on foot, which, let me tell you, really takes the mystery out of the place. People have, of course, claimed to have caught George on camera, but you know me. I don't tend to find pictures or videos of ghosts particularly convincing. Even if a photo isn't doctored after the fact, claiming that a whiff of smoke in the background is actually a ghost because it happens to look like a spooky face doesn't hold up in the Court of Daisy. There was also supposedly a ghost that haunted the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror, which has subsequently been rebranded as the Guardians of the Galaxy Tower in 2017. The ride is essentially a freight elevator that jerks its riders up and down an elevator shaft, stopping at four different platforms along the way with video displays of, at the time, Twilight Zone-themed scary stuff, which I assumed was like Ed Wynn trying to sell death cheap trinkets in order to save a little girl from dying, or a hot young Robert Redford dying in a woman's basement, or a giant Agnes Moorhead battling tiny action figure-sized astronauts who landed on her roof in their UFO from Neener Neener. Neener, neener, the United States of America! According to DrDisney.com, legend has it that one of the employees who worked as a bellhop on the ride suddenly died on Platform D. No one knows how he died, and once again, as my buddy Saeed will repeatedly remind you in nearly every episode of Lost, that's not important right now, which incidentally is code for the writers don't know how to explain away that major plot hole, so let's just move on, but that's not important right now. What is important is that Bob the Bellhop, as we'll call him, haunts Platform D and causes playful mischief, much like George over at Pirates of the Caribbean. Incidentally, Disney seems to be most perilous for its poor, doomed employees. And then, of course, there's the Haunted Mansion, which some people claim is actually haunted. Because of course they do. According to the blog Ghosts and Ghouls, an unnamed photographer claimed to have snapped a photo of what he thought had to have been a ghost. He said, I took my 100-foot night shot accessory to Walt Disney World, WDW, with the specific purpose of taking ride photos of the Haunted Mansion for a WDW virtual visit. After documenting the ride, I put the camera away for the rest of the day. I went back to our place that evening and began to download the photos to my laptop. Lo and behold, one of the first shots of the attraction shows something that definitely was not there when I was on the ride. This photo was taken in the first hallway of the attraction, the one with the following portraits. In the photo, it appears as though a child is peeking his head out of the doom buggy and looking directly at me. Not only was he not there when I took the pic, there wasn't a child of this age within 20 people in front of me in line. And as you can see, he's only a few doom buggies in front of me. Not only that, what's he doing looking at me? There is no flash and no visible light coming from me. It's all infrared and invisible to the naked eye. I think it's an incredibly spooky photo, and I have no idea where that kid came from. We'll post the photos on our socials so you can see for yourself, and let me know if you agree that if this camera was supposed to be able to take photos inside a dark ride, it was a defective camera, because you can definitely not see anything except this alleged child that wasn't there. If the point was to take pictures of the ride, that ain't it. Also, who knows how old that person is? 
I would imagine if someone took a picture of me in those conditions, I'd probably look like a 16-year-old boy. Hell, I look like a 16-year-old boy most of the time anyway. It's worth noting this unnamed photographer was hired by Disney to take photos of the ride. I'm no spin doctor, but I would say cooking up a story about a little ghost boy haunting the haunted mansion might help drive ticket sales. According to ghostsandghouls.com, lots of employees have reported seeing the ghost of a little boy running around the ride. I asked a friend who works at Disney, and she said she's never heard about a single ghost in any of the rides. She had, though, heard about plenty of sex happening in Disney employee dressing rooms, but that is, unfortunately, a story for a different podcast. Sorry, strangers. However, if intrigue and conspiracy are your thing, albeit not the sexual kind, there's that which surrounds Club 33 at Disneyland. The super-exclusive dining club is hidden in a place in New Orleans Square where most guests would never know it's there. According to the Daily Mail, Club 33, tucked away at number 33 Royal Street in the New Orleans quarter of Disneyland, has fewer than 500 members, and you can only join if you know a guy who knows a guy, and even then has an average wait time of 14 years. According to DisneyVacationsClub.com, a site that resells people's Disney vacation packages, which is incidentally very against the rules for Club 33 members, but apparently happens anyway, it costs $25,000 to join and $10,000 a year to be a member. And with that, members get annual park passes, 50 single-day admission tickets, five private VIP tours a year, fast passes for every visit, as well as a bunch of other perks, including bragging rights. But what's with the extreme exclusivity? What's Disney trying to keep private from average Joes like me and I assume you? Incidentally, if you are a Club 33 member, DM me. Well, some people believe that Club 33 is a secret meeting place for Masons. Walt Disney may or may not have been a member of the Masons Youth Organization and or a 33rd degree Mason, which may or may not be the highest degree Mason one can be. As discussed in the Secret Societies episode, the Masons are bizarrely private, so it's hard to get clear answers on how any of it works, why and who belongs. But according to the author of DisneylandClub33.com, a website devoted to Club 33... Another clue, perhaps the most significant in the entire club, is the design of this floor. Most cast members are not aware of the significance of this design, but there are those who will instantly recognize the historical and age-old meanings. I find the design of the floor to be quite Masonic in design, almost too perfect to be uh, coincidental. The most significant clue is the design of the floor tiles? I'm no fanatic of Disney lore trying to connect an exclusive club inside an expensive theme park to a secret society, but if the floor tiles are your biggest clue, I'd say you're reaching pretty far, or in this case, stooping pretty low. Whatever its purpose, Disney himself died only months before the club was opened, so he never got to enjoy the fruits of that particular labor, neither the fine dining nor the super-secret meetings. I got to eat at Club 33 once as a friend of a friend of a member on someone else's dime. It was fine. I actually don't remember the meal, which says a lot, because food is my love language. I'm sure it was tasty, but, like, not $10,000 a year tasty. I know a great taqueria in Los Angeles that makes a killer fish burrito for about 8 bucks. 
The only thing more mysterious than Disney fanatics are Disney fanatics with too much expendable income. Walt Disney himself, of course, is the original Disney fanatic, and it seems he hasn't been able to truly leave his beloved playground behind. It is said that Disney haunts his old apartment above the Main Street Firehouse in Disneyland. The old ghost story goes that shortly after Disney died, someone came to clean the apartment and turned out all the lights when they had finished. But when they got back down to the street, one lamp in the apartment was back on. Supposedly, she had to keep going back to turn the lamp off until finally she claimed to hear a voice say, Don't forget, I'm still here. And now a light is always kept on in Disney's old apartment on Main Street, just in case. If Walt Disney's ghost really haunted Disneyland today, would he even recognize it? What would he think about what he saw? Merch shops lining the streets, three-star restaurants, gourmet coffee bars, endless lines of people waiting for rides sporting Mickey emblazoned t-shirts and sparkling mini ears, Captain America, Thor, Darth Vader, Yoda, Rey, Woody, Buzz Lightyear, Nemo, Monsters, Inc. The list goes on and on and on. While Walt Disney's Disneyland bore a squeaky clean resemblance to its Coney Island cousin, the Disney of today is unrecognizable as such. It looks more like a fun-themed airport, an outdoor shopping mall with rides. Anyway, the point is moot because you and I, stranger, know that Disney's ghost couldn't possibly be haunting anything. Because he isn't dead. He is cryogenically frozen in a chamber somewhere waiting for the technology to be invented to thaw him out so he can finally visit Disney World in Club 33 for the first time and browse through Disney Plus, probably thinking vaguely to himself, maybe this brand has gotten big enough? Any day now, strangers. Any day now. Next time on Strange and Unexplained. A woman goes out for a late-night cigarette and never returns. Without a single witness or clue, and with the only possible suspect unwilling and unable to speak, the mystery of Lori Ceci Beauvais' disappearance remains to this day. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Becca Gregorio and Natalie Grillo. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, edited by Eve Kerrigan, and researched by Jess McKillop. Our audio editor and mixer is Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Luther Creek, Ryan Garcia, Lauren Hooper, and Andrea Jones-Sojola. Our social channels are run and managed by Amy Sapp. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUPod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. <laughs>